Here we go. Roll video. I think anybody creating something new must have an adventure. It's not cinema, it's something else. My advice to a young filmmaker is to make a movie every week. The whole bag of movies can be learned in about a day and a half. But suspense is essentially an emotional process. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta make films, you gotta make it and get a scene. Cinema for me is a world of when I dream. Welcome to Behind the Slate. I am your host, Aaron Strand, and today I am joined by a medical expert currently working on the front lines of the opioid epidemic. Dr. Tracy Vatisse is an associate professor at Emory University School of Medicine. She had previously served as residency program director and division chief of general internal medicine at Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan. Dr. Vatisse works at Grady Memorial Hospital, which is a public safety net hospital here in Atlanta, Georgia, and is the 10th largest public hospital in the country. There, she works as an internist, but she also practices addiction medicine with the Georgia Harm Reduction Coalition. I am honored to be joined by Dr. Tracy Vatisse. Tracy, how are you doing today? Great, Aaron. Thank you for having me. Of course. Thank you so much for being here. I want to start off by just asking a little bit about you. So I know, you know, from my wife, who, who we both know, that medicine can often be a bit like the arts and that the people who do it often feel called to it. So I'm curious, when did you first feel the call of medicine and know that you wanted to become a doctor? I remember distinctly, I was a sophomore in college. I came home one weekend Uh, Both my parents were teachers, and I informed them that I was going to be a teacher, a high school teacher, that I had found my passion, and this is what I was going to do. And my father said to me, if you want one more dime from me for your education, you will not be a teacher. (laughs) (laughs) So I thought, well, education is my passion, but I have to have a plan B. And I had some exposure to, to medicine from my family. And I thought, well, I could be a teacher and be a physician. And so it was really the call to being a teacher that sort of guided me towards medicine. That's so cool that you were immediately drawn to the educational component, which is, is, is so important. And I know for my wife, it, it, that was a bit... She had to have an educational experience to arrive at education uh, through medicine. Um, yeah. That's really cool. I also... I'm, a, I'm just impressed that you... Like this, anytime my parents tried to tell me to do anything, that was like an immediate source of rebellion for me. So, yeah, that was the one time I listened to them. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's amazing. So, so as okay, so as you're going through medical school and you know that you have this focus on teaching, how did um, you end up landing in uh, internal medicine as a as a discipline? During medical school, I thought I was going to be an OB-GYN doctor. And then I did my OB-GYN rotation. We do our clinical rotations during our third year of medical school. And I was there for one day and I realized this is not for me. And then subsequent to that, I did my internal medicine rotation. And I realized like, this is where I fit. These are my people. This is the way my brain thinks. And it just became very clear that internal medicine was going to be the career path for me. And all this was happening in Michigan at the time, correct? Yes, yes, in Detroit, Michigan. Yeah. So at what point during either your educational experience or once you got into practice, did, what, at what point did you first become aware of the opioid epidemic? Yep, I was in Detroit and one of my responsibilities was that I ran a pretty large clinical practice, uh, which was resident-based and faculty-based practice. And uh, the the health, the physician plan uh, administrators came to me and said, you know, we've been looking at your data. There are so many prescription opioids coming out of your clinic. It seems like a lot. And at this point, you know, people were starting to talk about over-prescribing of opioids and the role that that played in the first wave of the opioid epidemic. And so I embarked on a quality improvement project, basically, that included educating faculty physicians and resident physicians about safe opioid prescribing practices in an effort to try to um, control the overprescription of the opioids at that time. 
And so that's when I originally got into it, realizing that it was a problem. And from there, I sort of got more into education around uh, chronic pain management. I'm a palliative medicine physician as well. And so I have that background. And so from there, I got into chronic pain management and educating other physicians about responsible opioid prescribing. And then from there, it was only a natural step in my clinic situation to learn about treatment of opioid use disorder and embark on that practice. So what what year would you say that was uh, around? It was around 2006, probably. Okay, okay. Yeah. So I, and I know, so that falls, that's like 10 years after... Purdue Pharma began their aggressive marketing campaign uh, for OxyContin, which I think I think is generally considered a rough, like the rough sort of start point of the yes. of the opioid epidemic. How would you describe the opioid education that you had received prior to that point? So I trained my residency training took place in the mid early to mid nineteen nineties. And at that point, there, that was when we really saw the, it was, a, it was sort of a twofold push. So as you mentioned, one push was from, the, uh, from large pharma, who at that time had a lot of access to physicians. There's not so much access now, particularly to resident physicians, um, but they had a lot of access to physicians. So in that early 90s to mid 90s, you know, we saw a lot of uh, large pharma employees, sales representatives, really pushing this idea that opioid therapy for chronic pain was safe, that it was not going to cause addiction in people who had chronic pain. And we were very much encouraged to prescribe for chronic pain. And then the other side of that was that there were some pockets of academic medicine who also expressed this opinion of chronic pain is way undertreated and, you know, we should be using more opioids. They're safe, again, non-addictive and sort of that, that perfect storm resulted in us, again, prescribing a lot of opioid pain medications for chronic pain. Yeah. Um, the author Sam Quinones in his book, Dreamland does a wonderful job of describing this, this twofold sort of, um, yeah, just shift in opinion, um, and it and 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 does a really good job to say that it's like, oh, it's not, it's not just, oh, this this person was bad, or it's all this person's fault. And while there, of course, there are bad actors, it's also just that there was this sort of cultural zeitgeist around maybe the previous three thousand years of history of um, of humans and opioids isn't real. I don't know. Like, yeah, it's fascinating. You know, the other the other thing that happened just around the same time, maybe a little bit earlier, and because I'm a palliative medicine physician, I find interesting is that was really the time when palliative care started to pick up attention and you know Americans started thinking like oh I don't have to die in pain I don't have to suffer and somehow there was a, a cultural shift in America around people's expectations of chronic pain too so it was it's a it was a really interesting time and again like I said the perfect storm did you at any point encounter someone suffering from addiction you know prior to that point where you be, you began that study of the of your own practice were you beginning to see evidence of 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 people addicted to these substances yeah i you know as i reflect back on it you know there were multiple times when if not opioid use disorder probably opioid use disorder but at least opioid misuse a lot of opioid misuse and you know, to this day, I think about one particular patient who is a middle-aged woman, um, you know, had some chronic pain. I prescribed opioids for it. And you, I could just see as I reflected back on the problems that started happening. You know, she started having problems with her relationships and in her job. And at the time, you know, I thought, oh, this seems problematic. Maybe it's opioid misuse, you know, but Reflecting back on it, there was a number of those times when I thought, oh, this person has opioid use disorder, and I, I missed it at that time. What is what is that, as you kind of reflect back, you know, what does that, that feel like? Because I, I mean, I know as, 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 a, as a practicing physician, and I know from my wife's firsthand experience, like, you know, all these things like take, a, take a, an emotional toll. What does that feel like to think back on? Yeah, it, it you know, again, it's been so many years. And the fact that I still think about it, I think probably speaks volumes, you know, I'm just it. it, it yeah, it doesn't it doesn't feel good. 
And again, like you said, you know, as a physician, the last thing I want to do is to contribute to people's suffering. Um, but yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't feel good. And when I reflect back on that time, um, yeah, the whole, the whole time period doesn't feel great. So as you began this sort of reassessment of opioid prescribing within your own practice, what was some of the other feedback you were getting from colleagues or peers, or were you seeing any colleagues and peers doing similar work? Did you feel uh, alone in that, in that reassessment or did you feel supported? What, what was that like as far as the general community of physicians? Um, a lot of physicians in the practice, you know, that, that I was at, and I think it, their, their reaction varied. Uh, some people were, I think, felt defensive, you know, when I would say, okay, you know, you're prescribing this number of opioid pain medication pills, and compared to your colleagues, you know, you're X percent higher, and I think people would get defensive and sort of fall back on that well. You know, people have chronic pain, they're suffering, I'm here to relieve suffering. Other people, I think, really had experienced problems uh, in prescribing, you know, some challenges and thought, oh, okay, well, maybe this sort of different approach will help me, will help the patients. So it was sort of a mixed bag at that time. And I think that was pretty much, you know, in communities in, in the area that I was practicing on were sort of the same response. It was a mixed, you know, people, some people were like, okay, this is long overdue. They recognized that other people became very defensive. Um, and so it was yet to really, you know, the culture was really yet to change at that point. I think it's also really important just to remember that like in this story, again, you can point to bad actors, you know, you can point to the, the ad execs at Purdue Pharma. You can point to these few, relatively few examples of doctors who were truly like kind of malevolent actors, pill mills that just crave in sort of behavior. But on the whole, this is people with the best of intentions trying to be helpful and not realizing like the, you know, the, the long-term effects of their actions. And I, I just think it's a really important thing to like keep remembering. And it's like, I think the overall issue is kind of pointing the finger of blame or like stigma against all parties involved and, and just keeping that empathetic approach, both to the people suffering from addiction and, and to the medical establishment in that. So, so what were, what were sort of the safety aspects? What were sort of the things that you changed specifically in the practice to, to be more aware and to curb overprescribing? The main educational component, Aaron, really consisted of educating physicians about pain management. So even today, medical students don't get much on pain management. If anything, residents get a little bit, they get more depending on what area of the country they might be in. If there's a higher you know, incidence of opioid use disorder, they get more education. If there's not, they don't. So really it was about educating about appropriate management of chronic pain and this idea that so many non-opioid treatments are at least as effective and many times more effective than opioid pain medications. Um, and so really it became like, this is, you know, this chronic pain you are going to see forever and ever. It is a very common problem. Let's talk about what really works. And the fact that opioid pain medications, while they have never been studied long-term for chronic pain, you know, any benefit really, any, all, any study that's been done shows like a very modest benefit and that other treatments are better and more effective. And so that was a big component. Um, and then just this idea of, using opioid pain medications uh, for people who have tried every other sort of therapy that is not working and are appropriate for a trial of those pain medications. Not everybody is. Um, and so that's really was the education around that. And then from there, um, it took a few years for me to sort of get to this other point where, you know, I realized, well, now we have all these people that we have contributed to they're opi developing opioid use disorder. We're like, now what? You know, we can't just abandon these people. And so then I got uh, interested in and educated in treatment of opioid use disorder. And so then the education step for that was like, let's talk about prescribing medications to treat opioid use disorder, you know, and how you can do that and getting some of these patients treated with medication. 
um, and not just abandoning them, which unfortunately still happens a lot. People who are on chronic opioids just sort of like not prescribing anymore. And then, you know, bad things happen. Absolutely. So I want to get into, I want to get into all that and, and, and sort of that shift in perspective. But first I just want to ask at what point, like doing this work, did you start to, at what point did sort of the scale of the opioid epidemic become clear to you? You know, it, it became it became clear to me in practice that, um, that 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 prescription opioid use disorder clearly was more prevalent than any of us thought it was in the you know mid two thousand aughts when things really became public about the opioid use disorder and the significant increase in unintentional opioid overdose deaths. And you mentioned the several books, you know, one of those books is Beth Macy's Dope Sick, which also is fabulous in addition to Dreamland. Um, and so then it, you know, the, with the public attention to it, it became, you know, it became much more obvious to me that there were more people with prescription opioid use disorder than I had even thought in practice, that I wasn't, you know, screening enough, asking enough, delving into it enough. And so once attention was called to it, then I think many of us thought like, wow, there's a lot more people who were prescribing opioids to who actually have opioid use disorder and we need to pay attention to it. So then as you shift into treatment uh, uh, for people suffering from this, uh, sort of what was your approach? What, what was the, what, how did you become educated um, into the science and the medicine of addiction, and how did uh, how did your how did you institute that education into your practice? I um, sort of delved into it through different professional societies. So we have different you know national professional societies that were paying attention to it, uh, including um, ASAM, which is the Addic National Addiction Group, and a lot of people were putting on you know continuing medical education, and so I took advantage of all of that self-educated myself with reading. And then really importantly, at the time, you had to do what they called X-waiver training to prescribe buprenorphine, trade name Suboxone, which we use to treat opioid use disorder. And that training, while they've done away with that requirement now, that training, um, which, is, which was done by SAMHSA, um, was fabulous. And so, and then through there, you connect with people who are also you know, treating opioid use disorder through your national societies, and then you sort of develop a community. So that's really the the way my educate addiction education took place at that time. On a personal level, what was you know what were you what were you feeling as you were going through this? Like, were you were you excited by the prospect of 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 learning and helping people? What what were you what was going through your mind and your heart? Yeah, I was so excited uh, because other people who had been doing it, I hadn't started doing it yet, but other people who were treating opioid use disorder, you know, had the, as physicians and, and uh, advanced practice providers had these great stories. You know, this, these people, this person, you know, we got started on buprenorphine and their life changed dramatically. And they, you know, and it's just, and people would say, you know, this is the most satisfying um, illness to tr disease to treat because the results are often just so remarkable and it's, and you know, the, the, there was sort of a myth, and I think there's, I feel like there's still sort of a myth behind this, that treating people with buprenorphine or prescribing buprenorphine is some sort of a difficult process when in fact it's not at all. And so the results are amazing. The, you know, it, it's just, it, it, there's just very few things that we treat uh, where the outcomes are so, are so good. Absolutely. Well, I'm, I can attest to it personally. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, and for those who don't know, and we talk a little bit about this in the previous episodes, but buprenorphine is, uh, is, is a medicine that uh, binds to opioid receptors uh, in the brain uh, and basically prevents you from precipitating into acute opioid withdrawal. Now, buprenorphine, when taken by someone who has been using uh, much stronger medicines, uh, at least in my personal experience and from the other people that I know that have taken it, uh, it's, you, you almost like don't feel it. Um, it's it, because it's so much less strong than, uh, high doses of oxycontin or, um, 
or, or heroin. Uh, now, however, if you're just, it does, you know, it, buprenorphine does sometimes find its way to the street. And if you have not been taking any opioids, it does give you some sort of little buzz. Um, but it's, it's risk of abuse is much lower. And it uh, basically, for me personally, it bought me enough time to where I wasn't going crazy with withdrawal that I could begin to take more active steps in my recovery, um, get hooked up with the recovery community. And from there, uh, rebuild my life. And, and buprenorphine was an absolute critical step in buying me that window. It basically took what was a very tiny window of opportunity where I could have changed my life and elongated it um, so that I could take step by step. Does that more or less like line That's up with fab- sort of- <laughs> That is a fabulous description, Aaron. I love that. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, so then, um, in 2015, you move from Detroit down to Atlanta, and um, that's a first of all, that's a really big change. I moved from uh, Madison, Wisconsin, to uh, Athens, Georgia, when I was 11, and I know that the Upper Midwest and the South is a uh, is quite a difference. So, what what yeah. was that? What was that big uh, big career shift like for you? Well, I was the people I work with are so incredible, as as you know, one of them is your wife. Um, and so that the the job part, I was of course anxious about it, but everyone was so welcoming and so wonderful. And so that that was a wonderful change. Um, one of the one of the biggest changes that has been very difficult for me to deal with, as you might imagine, is that Georgia did not expand Medicaid. <clears throat> and so when you, yeah, coming from Michigan, who was an early adopter of Medicaid expansion you saw the difference. It was as dramatic uh, in terms of resources that people have for their health care and things that we can do as physicians. So that part of it, it was and still is very difficult. Um, mm. Yeah, I can imagine. That, <laughs> now, were you, were you seeing a difference in um, the way that uh, that doctors were relating to opioids? Were you seeing, were you having, what was, what was the cultural difference in both from a doctor's perspective and from the patient suffering from opioid abuse disorder? Uh, What was the difference between Detroit and Atlanta? Yeah, very good question. So there was a big difference and depending on what area of the city you're in or what area of Georgia you're in, there is going to be a difference. So in you know the area of town where I practice, a stimulant use disorder is much much more common than opioid use disorder. Um, although again, there's there's you know still a lot of opioid use disorder, um, so that was one difference. Um, the other couple other differences, in terms of our primary care practice and their approach to prescribing opioids, there was a dramatic difference that and that. The, the primary care practice um, where I'm at prescribed very few opioids for chronic pain and had prescribed very few, you know, historically. And quite honestly, um, that is probably based in racism. Um, the majority of patients that we care for are black. Um, and, you know, there was very, very good data to show that there's um, significant disparities in chronic pain management. And so, you know, while we did not have a big opioid use, misuse problem in our primary care practice because we weren't prescribing it, you know, there was that issue. But uh, outside of our, our practice in our hospital and in Georgia, um, you know, there is, of course, a significant um, opioid use disorder issue. Um, and I, that's how I got involved with uh, Georgia Harm Reduction Coalition. Um, they... Uh, had grant funding um, shortly after I got here to start a buprenorphine office-based buprenorphine practice, and so I got involved in in that. And again, it's been hugely satisfying. So. How has the opioid epidemic changed in the last ten years? From as you began, you know, as you instituted a reassessment of your own practice back in Michigan, moved to Georgia in 2015. Now in 2023, I mean, we're seeing more deaths from overdoses than ever before. What has changed and and what is the situation like on the ground today? Yeah, as you uh, noted, I think in your previous podcast, Aaron, over 80,000 Americans have died in 2022 of unintentional opioid overdose. And, you know, 
also, as you know, in 2010, really the number of prescriptions, like clinicians stopped prescribing opioids for chronic pain and the number of opioid pain medications that are now out in the community have drastically decreased. And now, um, you know, the unintentional opioid overdoses are really driven by the fentanyl supply. Um, as you know, um, fentanyl now is ubiquitous. All heroin is cut with fentanyl. Many people are injecting just fentanyl. All counterfeit pills are fentanyl, no matter what they're labeled. You know, they sell them under certain other names, but they're, they're all fentanyl. And fentanyl is, you know, exponentially more potent than heroin and other opioids. And, you know, people don't know how much fentanyl is in a certain supply. And so they're using and then unintentionally overdosing. And then also the cocaine supply also has fentanyl in it, you know, so it really is the, the fentanyl, which is a synthetic opioid, extremely powerful um, that has infiltrated the drug supply that is now causing um, this increased um, unintentional opioid over deaths in, in Americans. When you come into contact with um, uh, people suffering uh, from opioid abuse disorder, uh, are they are they aware of the ubiquity of fentanyl? Are they are they frightened of it? Are they in denial of it, or are they embracing it as a as a cheaper alternative? What's sort of the the, the sense on the ground? Yeah, it's a, it's a, you always ask like the best question. So, um, you know, early on when fentanyl started infiltrating the supply, people were not aware of, of it of it infiltrating, and so people were using heroin that was cut with fentanyl, and they they weren't aware of it, and so. That one of the harm reduction strategies that we employed was were fentanyl test strips. So like, hey, hey, test your heroin, test your cocaine for fentanyl. Now it has moved to the point where um, people who um, are using, you know, opioids, any kind of opioids from the street, are all aware that it is it is either pure fentanyl or it is cut with fentanyl. And nobody knows how much, right? And so that's the problem. Um, but everybody is aware of it. And again, now it's more, it's become more like, well, how much is in this, you know? Um, how, how do they, how do they feel about that? Um, well, again, we try, you know, we try for harm reduction and many people, um, sort of embrace some of those, you know, like, okay, we're going to do a test dose. Like, let's do a smaller dose, see what happens before I inject, you know, a full dose, um, or, you know, are using a, a little bit less again, since I'm at harm reduction, I, you know, put naloxone in everybody's hand before they walk out the door and talk about using it and not using alone and well, those some of those harm reduction strategies um, can be helpful but again it's uh it's a diff really difficult situation are people like do are people listening to that advice like what's the reception to some of those those suggestions yeah the reception at at, at, at georgia harm reduction has been has been very well they take it very well i think many of them um, embrace those sort of harm reduction strategies. I mean, some, you know, some people will say, I'll say like, please don't use alone. You know, some people say like, well, that's not possible, you know, so I we try to work through some of those things, but I think many people will take those suggestions to heart. What, what is harm reduction if someone has never heard of it? So harm reduction is based in a philosophy and framework, uh, that embraces all of us as our, all of our lives are of equal value and you know we need to approach our our lives and our care with that framework in mind uh, when it comes to substance use disorders you know that means meeting people where they are at um, and doing whatever we can to keep them safe and most importantly keep them alive and so that as you know Maren that's a variety of of approaches and treatments, including things like syringe exchange, so that if people continue to use injection um, drugs, that they have a safe needle and syringe supply, educating them on how to make injections safer, um, treat, screening and treatment of infectious complications of injection drug use. Um, really importantly, um, naloxone, as you know, which is a reversal of opioids when a person uh, suffers from an unintentional opioid overdose, getting as much naloxone as we can out there and educating people on how to use it, talking to people about not using alone because that's when you know nobody's there to help or call. 
Um, and then really, really importantly, again, medications to treat opioid use disorder um, are a very, very important uh, part of harm reduction. Um, many people um, will um, be abstinent from opioids when they're treated with medications, but other people will continue to use and hopefully will use less, you know, and, and so that's, that's part of our approach. How is this approach different from more prevail, uh, the pre previous prevailing sort of establishment approaches towards addiction? Um, why is this, why is harm reduction as a philosophy important? I guess is what I'm trying to get at. It's, it's important because, um, you know, we want to keep people alive and as healthy as possible. Again, all of our lives are equally valuable. And the, this, I, and I still see people, still people will still say things to me like, oh, you know, they, it's, it's their personal will. They should just quit. Like, what's the big deal? It, you know, I still have people say, oh, opioid withdrawal isn't going to kill them. We don't need to worry about that or treat that. Um, <laughs> there's still, as you know, just so much stigma um, around people, you know, around people who use substances. Um, I still, you know, they did away with the X waiver training for buprenorphine prescribing, you know, which was the educational requirement. And I thought, oh, great. And then you still, I still hear many, many of my colleagues say, I don't want to get into that. I don't want to prescribe that. I don't want to deal with, you know, quote, those people. Um, so yeah, there's just still so much, unfortunately, stigma uh, around substance use. Does that tie into why you're using, again, language that some people may have never heard before, opioid use disorder? I, I mean, is that, does that label uh, try to fight some of those stigmas as opposed to just, you know, yeah. these, these junkies? I don't, you know, like. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No, language is really important, right? Yeah. And so, yeah. So we try to use a different, a different non-stigmatizing language. And again, I feel like the more I use it, the more other people will say like, oh, you know, and sort of pick up on that. And, and, you know, I, I find younger people are already, you know, very in tune with, using non-stigmatizing language. Can you remember back to when you first heard about uh, a disease model of addiction? And what was your initial reaction to that? Um, I do remember. And I mean, there's, I think for, you know, very long time, there's sort of been this biosocial sort of model. Um, and to me, it made total sense. You know, I, like many, many people, um, there, you know, I come from a family who has some substance use disorder history, like most people. And you, know, you kind of see it go from like generation to generation and yeah, there's trauma and stuff, but you know, I, it, it really, I thought, well, this makes sense. Right. So today, how are you still seeing these stigmas both from the, the medical side, but also from the patient side? What are, what are the stigmas that both parties are kind of bringing to the situation? Yeah. You know, it's, that's a great question. I, I, I have, you know, patients, clients who still will use stigmatizing language themselves. Um, now that you, you know, bring that up, you know, they might say like, oh, I'm a junkie, you know, oh, I deserve this. Um, and I, you know, spend time educating them on the disease model and how, you know, substance use disorder is so complex and there's so many other interacting factors. And, you know, we talk about like not, not blaming yourself and, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting, but there's a lot of shame around it uh, from the, my patients and clients. And, you know, I try to educate again around sort of the, you know, biosocial model and that, and emphasize that this, this really isn't a fault, you know, this is a problem that we can address and let's, you know, figure out how we can move forward from here. It, it's so important to hear that. Um, I remember as I was getting sober that the, because it was like, because it was so once, once the, first of all, it's kind of amazing that it, it took me so long to sort of put the pieces together that this, that this one thing was the linchpin aspect that was just ruining my life. You know what I mean? Like it, it, at first it was like, I'm blaming all these external factors. Oh, it's you, this person, and this person screwed me over. But once the pieces came together and it was like, oh shit, this one thing is what's is is really the problem. Then it's sort then you know you can't help but feel like oh my god this one thing that I've been doing is the source of all this this pain and sadness and 
And, uh, and then as you start to kind of like piece the story together, I, you know, I find that's one thing that I find so therapeutic about the storytelling process. And one thing that I've really appreciated about the storytelling element of, uh, of 12 step recovery is that reframing of the narrative and, uh, and, and framing shame within a, within a context of, well, everything just takes what it takes. Your story has gotten you to this point, but that doesn't mean that it, it, it's, it's destined to be this for forever. Um, uh, but that shame element, I mean, honestly, like it's something that I, that I still deal with today. Uh, it's, and you know, 10 and a half years later, just in doing this podcast and sharing my story, I'm having to re assess the shame or shame is coming up for me, I guess is the, like the way I would say it. Um, so it's just, it is, it's just such a thing, uh, within this whole mess and it, it's such a barrier to entry. Um, the other part of the question from the medical side, what are some of the stigmas that you're still seeing kind of brought to the table from physicians? Once again, maybe even with the best of intentions. Again, all, all the time. Um, again, people who are, you know, anybody can treat now, use medications to specifically buprenorphine is really the major, you know, treatment that every physician can actually prescribe now. And so I, I hear a lot. And so now I'm really, you know, uh, you know, running around, like educating people on buprenorphine because the educational requirement isn't there anymore. And just saying, you know, from my own experience, like, listen, if you can prescribe insulin to people, like, which is really complicated, you can prescribe buprenorphine to people with opioid use disorder. And the results are so much more satisfying, you know? Um, and, but there are still a lot of people saying again, like, I don't want to mess around with this. I don't want those, again, those people in my, they're already there. Of course, they just don't know they're there. I don't want people with opioid use disorder in my practice. Um, we still see, unfortunately, um, more of that than you should. Um, and again, my hope, Aaron, is that the young people, like, again, I, I are going to change that. I already see the change, you know, they're embracing, treating opioid use disorder in primary care and other practice fields. And um, I really think things are sort of on the verge of changing in a positive way, but there's still, unfortunately, is a lot of stigma among physicians. It's amazing, like where that even comes from. Cause like, at, as you're, de- so like, as you're describing the, like, you know, a doctor saying, I don't want those people in my office. I immediately conjure up an image in my head of some sort of, some sort of creature crawling out from under a bridge and going into an office and like causing right. a ruckus or something like, you know right. what I mean? Like, and right. even though I know that, right. you know, it's just, maybe that character is there. That doesn't mean that they're not allowed help, but that it's also a lot of just normal people. There's a lot of quote unquote, like functioning addicts out there who you would have yeah. no idea, but who are yeah. in desperate need of help. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, it's just, just wild. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What, what do you think is, what do you think is misunderstood about addiction, um, uh, you know, in the broader culture? Well, one of the things that I think a lot about lately is there, there is a, I think, I, I don't know if it's a, a minority, a significant minority, I would say of people who are not embracing medications to treat opioid use disorder with this rationale, including people who have opioid use disorder, who with this rationale of, oh, you're just taking one substance that people, you know, have are addicted to and giving another similar substance. And what are you doing? And that I think is something that I deal with all the time um, with colleagues and with patients and families as well. And so one of the things you, you articulated it so wonderfully, but one of the other things that I explain to people is that buprenorphine, you know, it sits on those opioid receptors, like you said, um, keeps you from going through withdrawal so that you have more time. Right. But also that, you know, opioids like do damage your brain over a long period of time. And so you know, that buprenorphine sits there on those receptors and allows your brain to recover and to heal and to get back to normal. Um, and I find that people, like when you describe it that way, I find that people are like, oh, okay. Even people who have opioid use disorder, like I want to get off buprenorphine as soon as possible. You know, this is just another addiction. And then I have to kind of, kind of educate that. And so the one thing that I've been frustrated with 
most recently is that that is that sort of attitude which i which i also i like i can personally relate i know for me at a certain point i think about uh, about a month and a half or two months in um and uh i was feeling that sort of like i don't want to wake up feeling like i have to take this pill to be normal i want to move on with my life now at that point i was already had all these sort of like buffers of recovery like in my life and and at that point i began the the tapering process but it but it definitely like it was a journey to get there do i know there's still a um or at least at the time when I was doing this 10 years ago, there was a debate within the medical community about long-term buprenorphine use and sort of like a, as a maintenance drug or that sort of like, yes, we can put you on this, but then we want to get you off of it as quickly as possible. Where where have you seen sort of the best results and how do you feel about that, that dynamic? The best results are clearly, you know, from the studies are clearly long-term treatment with buprenorphine. And so I tell my patients, you know, I would like you to be on this for a minimum of one year. Okay. Then we can sort of reassess what you want to do. Many people have to take buprenorphine their entire life, you know, because when they come off it, the risk of relapse is extremely high. Um, and again, like you said, it depends the different people, different factors, right? Like how much support you have, all those sort of things play a role in it. Um, but I very much encourage people to, not rapidly come off of buprenorphine um, and to give it that time and also put the idea in their head that some people, many people take this medication their entire life, just like I take my blood pressure medicine, right? For the rest of my life. Mm. Um, so, and again, it, it just really varies uh, by individual, but I do sort of put that out there for people so that they understand that most people um, do best with long-term use of buprenorphine interesting interesting um where do you think that 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 like resistance to like oh you're just replacing one thing with another like where do where does that come from do you have any <laughs> any yeah, it's thoughts the on stigma that? right i don't you know it's the stigma i'm like what I, I i honestly don't know i mean there's so many weird american i mean we haven't talked we haven't touched on methadone right but that's like a whole ridiculous thing right so i don't i don't know again it i, I just i think it's stigma i think we need to just keep you know, pushing and hopefully people's attitudes change. And, and again, if, if people see the results, you know, like once you see the results of treating people with medications for opioid use disorder, you, you have to be a convert, right? I mean, it is, it is amazing, you know, for mo most, most people. Absolutely. I, I, let's touch upon that really quickly, because a lot of people might be coming to this conversation with this uh, mental image of uh, of the seventies methadone clinic. Yeah. Um, so, like, how 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 did that sort of yeah. that sort of imagery, that sort of expectation shape frame this conversation? Yeah. So, you know, the methadone, the history of methadone in the United States is is bizarre, right? It's it has always been regulated. Um, it is, you know, you have to go to an outpatient treatment program place. And for most people, you have to go every day and, you know, get your methadone, consume it there. It is very burdensome. Methadone is also an exceptional treatment for opioid use disorder, like buprenorphine decreases people's chance of dying by like markedly, like tons, a lot, and, you know, decreases complications, infections, and so on. Um, but it's burdensome, right? Because it's regulated by the government as opposed to like Canada, primary care people can prescribe methadone just like we prescribe buprenorphine. And again, results are, are exceptional. Um, so yeah, there's this like weirdness around methadone that's historical in the United States. Um, and again, it's also stigmatized. Like I drive by a, a methadone outpatient treatment program every day on my way to Grady and there's people outside waiting, you know, and I think to myself, like, I'm not going to stand outside waiting, right. For people driving by and um, so, yeah, so methadone is an exceptional treatment, but it is um, historically it's been regulated and, and problematic in the United States. There's something about the line uh, yeah. that like, it just, it yeah. just, it also just feels so like on a policy level, like inherently shaming. And it's yes, like, it is I inherently want, shaming. I want people yes. to stand out here and yes. like the people and people will drive by. Yeah. And, see and like you get one done. day's worth, like, you know, to, to, you know, like you, we trust you for one day only, you, you know, it, it is, it's, it is inherently shaming. You're absolutely right. As far as on the policy side, you know, what are, what would be some of the changes that you think could help the, the current 
opioid situation? Well, for one, I would uh, allow physicians to prescribe methadone for treatment of opioid use disorder uh, without any restrictions. Um, So that would be a a primary one. Um, And then I think, again, more education. I I am going to Georgia American College of Physicians conference in the fall. Um, to do some more educating around treatment of opioid use disorder and how people can do it in their primary care practices. And so I think education does help. I think publicity helps. Um, you know, I, I'm an avid reader of the news and, and any major news, I think say newspaper, which reflects my age, um, you know, every day there's some story about the current opioid epidemic, about treatment of opioid use disorder, about stigma around drug use. And so, you know, hopefully that continues. And I think over time, you know, hopefully people will continue to change and embrace um, the harm reduction and and medications to treat substance use disorders. How can people find out more about some of those those things that you just mentioned? How can people find out how to become better advocates? How can people find out uh, to engage with this stuff uh, in, a, in a different way if they're not already doing so? A great question. So the National Harm Reduction um, Organization uh, for the United States, is, they have a great website. It's harmreduction.org. And they have tons of education about harm reduction, education about medications to treat opioid use disorder and other substance use disorders, you know, which we didn't really talk about it's beyond our scope um, and resources, you know, plate, you know, resources on where people can find uh, clinicians who are prescribing buprenorphine can find harm reduction centers. Um, it's a, just a wealth of, of knowledge around harm reduction. And I highly recommend it to, to everybody to take a look at. Is there any pressure or risk from the government that still trying to uphold the, the sort of the 50-year war on drugs um, that's in opposition to these harm reduction initiatives? Or is that is that change philosophically starting to take place? It's philosophically, the change has taken place. Um, you know, it all depends on sort of, you know, what administration is in power, you know, who, what state you're in. Um, but I think currently, Aaron, um, yeah, there really has been a culture change and an embrace of of harm reduction. That's amazing. That's fantastic yeah. to hear. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's such, so, and such a wild difference from when uh, I was, uh, you know, I was in desperate need of help just 10 years ago. Yeah. And some people don't know where to go. And so again, that, that website, I think will be very helpful to people. Like it, there's, you know, it lists where, you know, where, where the harm reduction centers are, where clinicians who prescribe buprenorphine are. And so hopefully people will, will find that helpful. If, if someone's currently, you know, in active addiction, uh, you know, that, that's an amazing resource, but the family members, the incredible like web, cause it's like, it's, and that's one of the things as a, as a drug user, um, you know, you can kind of talk yourself into this idea of like, well, I'm just hurting myself or this is just affecting me, but it's not, you, you, you take place within a web of a community, whether you want to or not. And it does affect all these people, uh, around you. And those people often feel so helpless, um, and, 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 and don't know what to do other than rely on, on maybe the draconian strategies that they've seen in television and in movies. Right. Um, and they think of like, we, uh, like they think of a sort of hard, like intervention or sort of step, which, which, you know, no judgment like may or may not be appropriate, but, uh, the, these are resources that family members, that loved ones, that friends can also use and can potentially, you know, if the timing is right, meet the person they know where they are at. Maybe they're not ready to stop, but they can, um, they can be safer and hopefully stay alive for the opportunity where they may want to um, uh, take some more action. That's great. Great, great point. Um. So okay, so shifting shifting to the entertainment side a little bit, um, as opposed to just on the front lines. I, I'm curious. I bring this up because when when I was uh, part of the seeds of this project way back ten years ago was um, I would I uh, especially in my early months of getting sober, I was watching a lot of addiction movies, trying really trying to like find my own story, 
Um, and I was like, I just don't see it. Like, I don't see anything that reflects my experience. I'm curious, do you have, have you seen any movies or TV shows that you think do a good job of portraying opioid, uh, use disorder or the cert, the, the state of the opioid epidemic? Well, <laughs> I'll, you can edit this out, obviously, if you, um, you know, there, of course, um, there have been a few out recently. Um, I loved Beth Macy's book, Dope Sick. I thought the uh, television version had serious problems and issues. I can't remember. Was there? I, I read the Sackler book. I don't know if there was a documentary on that or not. I feel like I've seen a few things. Yeah. I've gotten a little uh, bit of like Sackler blaming like fatigue or it's just I like. Ha- I do too. I do too. I do too. I get um, it. They're big, bad, they're big, bad and rich. And like their, their yeah, name, their I, name kind of like sounds bad, but I'm just like, I just can't like hearing the same story over and over again. Yeah. I'm going to tell you, um, instead of a movie, I'm going to tell you a book. Cause I don't, I don't feel, I feel like you're right. I feel like there still aren't a lot of great movies, but I'm going to tell you a book that I read that I is so like, I feel like if you read it, you would, you, it would resonate with you. Yeah. Um, I thought it was so great. Hang on. I'm going to tell you what it is here. It's called Cherry. Like the fruit. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Of course. Oh yeah. yeah. Nico Walker. Nico Walker. Thought that was so cherry. great. Yeah. So it, I thought like that. I thought was so like accurately portrayed, and I thought that was that was fabulous. Oh, fantastic book. Yeah. Terrible movie. I'll, I'll, I'll oh, say. Oh, did they make a movie out of it? Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They made they made a movie. Stars Tom. That's Honk. too bad. I'm sorry to hear that because the book was great. It, the book it was so good. And when <laughs> I initially read that there was being that it was had been had been optioned into a film, mm-hmm. uh, and then following the production, I was I was hopeful. But um, yeah, unfortunately, it was it was. A oh, that's movie. too bad. But that's the book is bad. fantastic. If yeah. anyone is just yeah. familiar, has just come into contact with the the movie starring Tom Holland and you haven't read the book, please go read the book. It is really, really good. Um, so, so, okay. So, all right. So we're sort of on the same page here that like, I'm still, I'm still not loving the, yeah. the representation out here. Yeah. So for our production, you know, attempting to tell a modern story of, of opioid addiction, you know, what would be something that you would want us to keep in mind as, as we go forward? What do you think is, is it an important thing just for us to, to be aware of and kind of, keep keep in the front of our brains as we move through our artistic process well i mean i think so many of the things we've talked about already and i i i know you and i know you will keep so much at the front of your brain in terms of your how thoughtful you are and in your approach um again you know the stigma issue always is is forefront for me um you know i'm encountering this as we're still going through because we you know we're we're writing we're continually writing as we rehearse with the actors and there's this 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 battle of we want to we want to share the drama of the situation and we want to show you know the gritty reality of life as a drug addict um while at the same time yeah like not reinforcing the same tropes and stereotypes that we've all seen before and it's a it's a hard it's a hard thing to balance and I have no idea if we're going to do it accurately. And I think that, you know, we could have the best intentions and still like fall flat on our faces. You know what I mean? So it's, it is a tough thing. Um, it is a tough thing to, to do. I can't wait to see it. <laughs> uh, I also find it really funny because addiction, addiction really in many ways, like doesn't lend itself to drama. Um, yeah. I, I've said this a few times. Uh, I can't remember. If I've said it on the podcast actually, but the life of a drug, drug addict is actually like, for the most part, incredibly boring. Yeah, repetitive. that's why I like Cherry. It was like the real. <laughs> well, yeah, but yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, well, there's also you know he becomes a bank robber. That was like yeah. a, you know there's a lot of a lot of drama there. But one of the things that I find so frustrating in movies is that the the addiction gets shoehorned into other stories. It's like mm-hmm. our yeah. addiction our addiction stories are so often like actually performance genre stories where the addiction is just an obstacle that the hero has to overcome before the big show or the big yes, match or yes, like whatever absolutely, you know what I mean absolutely yeah. and we see this over and over again in like every rock biopic we saw it in the queen's gambit we say we see it yeah. all the time yeah. you know or or on the other side you'll if it's a true quote-unquote addiction story it'll be like it'll it'll really lean into the shock value and sort of like these these 
totally excessive situations and all and all of it is just like it just doesn't line up with my day-to-day yeah. life as a as an active you know opiate yeah. user Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. um which was a lot of waiting around honestly it was a lot of sitting it was a lot of sitting and waiting mm-hmm. whether you were mm-hmm. whether you were high or waiting to get high it was just a lot of sitting around um yeah yeah <laughs> so um i Similarly, and, and if you and if if nothing comes to mind, like that's totally fine. But you know, for our actors who are you know we're are not active drug users or dr- drug addicts, you know, we did not go for that like authenticity side of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, for our actors who are who are hoping to portray uh, people suffering from opioid abuse disorder, what what is something that you might want them to keep in mind? You know, as they as they move through this process. I imagine it must be difficult for them to sort of transition into that role. Again, sort of the, to always keep in mind sort of that biosocial model of addiction, substance use disorders, you know, where it's so, it's so complex, you know, there's brain stuff, you know, there's childhood and adult trauma, you know, there's mental health disorders, there's, as you said, the, your family and community that are affected and just to sort of, it's such, it's such a complex thing, addiction, and just to sort of keep all of those things in mind, I guess, Aaron. Yeah, it's, it's just, it's not so easy just to say like, oh, that person has substance use disorder. There's something wrong with them, right? It's a very complex process. Yeah, for sure. It, it's, it's one piece of a, of a much broader web. Yes, um, yes. And yes. it's often why, it can, it can feel so impossible to t- untangle both for the person experiencing it and for those around them, for care providers and why we need you, you, at least I, I can just speak for myself, why I needed a, a multifaceted approach to get myself out of that situation. Yes. And most people do, right? I mean, because by the time you're in that space, the, again, the, the web, like you described it is, you know, is damaged in a lot of different places. So. Yeah. And, th- and then it's also interesting moving forward how, you know, once you take the opioid, the active opioid use out of that web, there are all these little sort of, um, I don't know, entry points, synapses that once connected to that fiber that you'll be moving through life and all of a sudden you'll encounter. And it's yep. like, oh my God, I've never, I've never gone through this before without without a, a chemical solution and and how do you do that because that can be a really dangerous place for people yeah, absolutely. as they as they begin to yeah. rebuild their lives so yeah yeah winding up here looking back on sort of this journey that you have gone on personally professionally what makes you feel uh, the most grateful i am so grateful to have sort of stumbled on this this you know area of interest and expertise that I have developed, um, mainly because, you know, I love to teach, as I mentioned to you, so I do a lot of teaching around it and educating people, and hopefully they take this information and enact it and help people. But the thing that I am most grateful for, and I mentioned this several times, is seeing people recover after they're treated with, in my case, medications for opioid use disorder and the stories, you know, that I could tell are just, I cannot overstate it, are just amazing. I mean, people, you know, get their lives back together. They get jobs, they get housing, their families come back and support them. They're healthy, you know, they don't have, their medical problems are addressed. And I, I just, it's like I said, it's like nothing else that I have ever treated in terms of the successes and the joys that I see that come that come out of it. It's really just remarkable. That's absolutely incredible uh, and amazing to hear. And last question, given the current state of the opioid epidemic, where do you find hope? I find hope with the current administration's efforts Um, They, again, have invested a lot, a lot of money into treatment of opioid use disorder and other substance use disorders. You know, they got rid of the X waiver mandate so that we could all prescribe buprenorphine for uh, treatment of opioid use disorder. Um, 
and so I, I, I'm hopeful that this support will continue. Um, you know, that we will, you know, the, that we will continue to talk about harm reduction, embrace harm reduction, um, and keep, and keep people alive. And I, I am hopeful right now. Tracy, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Where can people find out more about the work that you're doing and harm reduction? Um, the National Harm Reduction Organization, their website is fabulous. It's just harmreduction.org. Again, lots of resources, lots of information. Um, locally, Georgia Harm Reduction Coalition, we have a website, ghrc.org. And you can find um, our, our locations and um, all things that we have available there. And I, I highly recommend everybody take a look at that as well. All right. We'll have uh, links to those down in the show notes. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And until next time, that is a wrap. My brother, my brother, Eugenita, and my sister, Sniff Cocaine. I don't use no junk, I'm the nicest boy you ever seen. My mother, my mother, she told me, and my father told me too. That that joke is a bad habit, why don't you leave it to me? My sister, she even told me, and my grandma told me too.